you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 316 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Gospel in a Nutshell episode, slash the most famous Bible verse episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that uh, the most famous Bible verse, slash the Gospel in a Nutshell, is the one that you always see on all the end of the world movies and the big picket signs and the crazy people who are holding the signs and saying the world's ending and whatever. It is, of course, John 3.16. And with that wonderful little bit of John 3.16 knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. But hold your horses, fellas and gals out there. This is Tim coming to you two days post recording. I am, I am back. I am back from the future. Marty, Marty. I'd be hard pressed to find one of our listeners whose name is Marty, but prove me wrong, listeners. Prove me wrong. Well, Matt, of course, is not here. Unfortunately, earlier on today, I was editing the episode, putting the final touches on it, when my computer crashed. Yes, Audacity crashed earlier for me, and I lost the entire show, so I am having to go back and re-edit the entire episode with little add-ins from me, since I lost my audio. But do not fret, ladies and gentlemen. Do not fret. You still have the original Matt from the SLS cast audio to enchant you throughout our runtime. I knew I couldn't be sneaky and try to trick you guys and gals because more than likely there's going to be some weird edits, some weird transitions, and I'm going to have to go back and record some of my own dialogue and splice it together and put it in the episode somehow. I thought I should just let you know. So from here on out... Get ready for some SLS cast, episode 316, Redo, or Redux, or is it Redo? This is when I need Matt to correct me on this. Redo X. We got some news to get to, right? Let's check out some news. Then let's do it, forks. Forks, folks, you can redo it. Let's do it. Here we go. It's the news. Well then, right first from me from Variety.com by way of Matt Donnelly and Shirley Halpern. Uh, Halpern. Michael Jackson Estate addresses controversial leaving Neverland Doc. You heard it here, folks. The Mike, actually, you heard it here, but you probably read it at Variety. <laughs> Michael Jackson Estate has issued a statement on the film Leaving Neverland, which premiered at Sundance back on the 25th of January. Uh, the documentary was screened at Park City, Utah's Egyptian Theater. The estate issued its statement about 12 hours after the film debuted, taking issue with what it calls, quote, the kind of tabloid character assassination Michael Jackson endured in life and now in death. End 
quote. Uh, the film follows two accusers as they describe the intense and graphic acts they say Jackson committed against them as well as those they say the pop icon coached them to commit. And, of course, this is supposedly taking place when they were kids. Interestingly enough, one of the accusers, a gentleman by the name of Wade Robson, and I use that term loose, loosely, uh, was one of Jackson's staunchest defenders, along with the likes of Macaulay Culkin, Corey Felt, and Corey Feldman. And, of course, if you remember, uh, Michael Jackson did pass away back in 2009. What's interesting here is, and this is, I'm just going to quote from a part of the statement. It's its own paragraph. And it says, for 20 years, Wade Robson denied in court and in numerous interviews, including after Michael passed, that he was a victim and stated he was grateful for everything Michael had done for him. His family benefited from Michael's kindness, generosity, and career support up until Michael's death. Conveniently left out of Leaving Neverland was the fact that when Robson was denied a role in a Michael Jackson-themed Cirque du Soleil production, his assault allegations suddenly emerged, end quote there. Now... I, I definitely would recommend you read the entire article. Um, it's pretty brief, just a few, just a few paragraphs, and then of course the entirety of their statement. But is it any wonder the man never found any peace? Um, this is the kind of bullshit that he had to deal with for the last twenty years that he was alive, and it just is unerring to me how insane it is that people are getting away with this kind of shit now now i'm not saying he was smart about how he conducted his personal life and i'm not saying that he was perfect by any stretch of the imagination but you i mean literally the movie only focuses on these two guys' allegations and nothing else and then they're trying to call it a documentary well i guess if you're going to document the falsehoods or the seemingly egregious notions that are purported to be put forward here, I guess you can technically call it a documentary. But the whole point of a documentary is that it is a nonfiction piece that gives you a viewpoint from which you can better understand a subject. And it angers me that movie, that a movie like this got made. Uh, Tim, do you have any thoughts on this? And, and again, folks, I highly encourage you to head over to Variety.com, again, by way of Matt Donnelly and Shirley Halper, uh, Halperin. Michael Jackson Estate Addresses Controversial Leaving Neverland Dock. What do you think there, Tim, if anything? Well, that definitely raises a few questions. And, of course, I'm talking about the guy who is coming out about Michael Jackson who didn't get that part, that role in that Circuit du Soleil Michael Jackson show. And of course, you can expect the Michael Jackson estate coming out and denying all these allegations. That doesn't surprise me at all. It's a bunch of he said, she said type of stuff. I have no idea what happened, but I have heard stories from Macaulay Culkin and just recently I mean maybe within the past few months or so he's been on podcasts and YouTube shows and whatnot and he has nothing but good things to say about Michael Jackson because when he was a child star I mean I don't know if it was on multiple occasions but there were at least one two or three times that he actually spent some time with Michael Jackson at Neverland Ranch. So, I mean, he's coming out and saying that nothing happened with him. And and here's the thing that really gets me. It's when I think of 
staunch defenders. I mean, Corey Feldman is like one of the staunchest defenders of Michael Jackson. And this guy is definitely, he's got his own problems. He's, he certainly does, and I won't pretend that he doesn't. But this is the one guy who has been screaming for at least the last decade, if not longer, about pedophilia in Hollywood. He's been screaming about it. Oh my God, these people are out there, you know, destroying little boys' lives and all this kind of stuff. And who's the one person he sticks up for every time? Every time is Michael Jackson. So I'm leaning towards believing in the fact that Michael Jackson did not do the things he was accused of when the one guy who would rat him out in two seconds is sitting there going, he was the only one that was good. So that's kind of, I mean, forget all the other legal stuff. Forget anything else that you want to talk about. This is like literal hard eyewitness first person account screaming, the guy was okay, you know. Now, didn't Corey Feldman come out like a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, about harassment brought on by the owner of some kind of kids club in the mid to late 80s that he frequented yes. as a child? Yes. I mean, with Corey Feldman coming out about that, and apparently Corey Feldman knew Michael Jackson, as what you were saying, he has no reason to not say bad things about Michael Jackson. You know, he, he has no reason to not come out and point a finger at Michael Jackson if things did indeed happen. I mean, hell, it's been about, what, like nine, ten years or so since Michael Jackson passed away? Yes, yeah, in June it'll be ten years. But of course, there's always the prospect that just because it did not happen to these two kids... It didn't happen to any other kid, any other child, you know? That is true. I don't discount the possibility. Of course it is within the realm of possibility. My thinking, but, but I don't believe it is likely. Um, and that, and I guess that's what it's boiling down to. They were able to prove both times that it actually went to court that money was the motivating factor. And, as a matter of fact, they were able to prove it so heartily the first time that California had to make a law to prevent it from happening again when the second trial came around. So uh, it's so I I mean so you've got that, but it's just again I get it. it you know, it's just one of those things. I suppose he'll never be able to escape, but. I just feel bad that, I mean, it's just this complete, it's so completely blatant, this garbage, this time around. Um, so, anyways. Anyways, all right, what do you got for us, sir? That's that's all my pre-Oscar nomination news. What do you got? Well, I'm going to begin my pre-Oscar nomination news discussion with this article here from IndieWire.com. Jonas Mikas R.I.P. Why This 96-Year-Old Legend Was Our Most Important Cinephile, written by Eric Kahn. It was published on January 23rd of this year, and it says this. Far from the factory of Hollywood, American film culture would never have made it this far without its greatest advocate, Jonas Mikas. 
far from the factory of Hollywood, American film culture would never have made it this far without its greatest advocate. Jonas Mikas was the most important cinephile in film history. His legacy contained multitudes, wartime refugee, New York movie buff, daring exhibitor, revolutionary critic, boundary-pushing filmmaker, poet, musician, wine connoisseur, the center of every party. Until his death at the age of 96 this week, the Lithuanian-born immigrant remained a resilient embodiment of the essential link between creating and advocating for creativity in all facets of life. At the closing night party for the New York Film Festival in September, Mikas stuck around until 1 a.m., hanging out with the likes of Julian Schnabel, Louis Garel, and Ed Lachman. Mikas' acolytes were everywhere, across multiple generations of film history, and they delighted at the opportunity to spend time by his side. I once drank wine with Mikas for two hours in his Greenpoint apartment while he shared insights into the changing nature of film culture and his continuing ability to create new work as the years wore on. At the time, he was in his late 80s, had recently finished a new diary film, and launched a website where he was posting daily videos. He had recently spent time with Martin Scorsese on the set of The Departed, and had plans for many new books, exhibitions, and international tours with his work. Much of that came to fruition over the next decade. Before he uprooted himself to live deeper in the burrow, he often hung out late into the night at hipster enclave Pete's Candy Store, drinking and sharing stories with innumerable colleagues saying, quote, people think I died in the 70s. They forgot that life continues, end quote, said Mikas. Mikas's epic biography speaks volumes about how he spread his influence. With his brother Adolphus, Mikas fled Nazi persecution during World War II and ended up in New York in 1949. It didn't take the siblings long to find their place in the bustling metropolis, deepening their knowledge of cinema by attending MoMA screenings and future New York Film Festival founder Amos Vogel's Underground Cinema 16 Club. Around the time that he began churning out personal essay films on 16mm film, Mikas co-founded Film Culture, one of the first serious movie magazines in America. Later, he became the first film critic for The Village Voice, where he espoused the ethos of avant-garde filmmaking as an essential challenge to Hollywood formula. That same passion came into play when in 1970 he founded Anthology Film Archives, still the most important venue for experiencing non-commercial cinema in the city. Thanks to the year-round Essential Cinema series, Mikas launched early in the venue's life. And all quotes there if you'd like to read more about it, and there is quite a bit more left to this article. Um, I'm scrolling down and there's a whole lot more left. I probably read only 20% of it. Please check out this IndieWire.com article, Jonas Mikas R.I.P., Why This 96-Year-Old Legend Was Our Most Important Cinephile, written by Eric Kahn. And that's it. All right. Well, next week, because we can't seem to 
get our stuff together. We're going to do news again, but we really do need to come up uh, with a bonus segment y'all haven't had in a while. So we'll try to just do news one more time and then, or maybe we'll just come up with something and surprise you. But for now it's news. Um, and we're going to go into the remaining bit of our news, which is not exactly like an article per se. We're going to talk about the Oscar predictions. And, uh, but before we do that, I, I'm sorry, Oscar, yes, nominations, thank you. Oscar predictions come in like three more weeks. But the Oscar nominations, but before we do that, before we do that, I'd like to do a quick little Wayne's World time shift. So we can go back to the 10th of October, 2018, where I tweeted out the following, quote, I would also like to predict the following Oscar nominations for A Star is Born Now. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Song. And as we go into the Oscar nominations, you will find that my predictions were correct, with the exception of Best Director, which I think was personally I think Bradley Cooper got robbed, but whatever. Um, I, I think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven out of eight predictions being correct on that. I feel, I feel, uh, pretty vindicated on. So, um, without further ado, best picture Oscar nominees. We have Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. We then have actor in a leading role, uh, Christian Bale from Vice, Bradley Cooper, Star is Born, Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate, Rami Malek, uh, Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Viggo Mortensen, Green Book. For actress in a leading role, we've got Yalitza Aparicio, Roma, we have Glenn Close, The Wife, Olivia Coleman, The Favorite, Lady Gaga, A Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Actor in a Supporting Role, Mahershala Ali, Green Book, Adam Driver, Black Klansman, Sam Elliott, A Star is Born, Richard E. Grant, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And Sam Rockwell, Vice. Actress in a Supporting Role, Amy Adams, Vice, Marina de Tavira, Tavira, Roma, Regina King, If Beale Street Could Talk, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz from The Favorite. Animated Feature Film, Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, Mirai, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, cinematography, Cold War, uh, Lucas Zhao, The Favorite, Robbie Ryan, Never Look Away, Caleb Deschanel, Roma, Alfonso Cuaron, and A Star is Born, Matthew Libetique. Uh, costume design, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Mary Zoffries, Black Panther, Ruth Carter, The Favorite, Sandy Powell, Mary Poppins Returns, Sandy Powell, Mary, Queen of Scots, Alexandra Byrne. Then for directing, we have Black Klansman, Spike Lee, Cold War, Powell, Powellowski, Powell Kowalski, The Favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos, Roma, Alfonso Cuaron, and Vice, Adam McKay. Uh, documentary feature, Free Solo, Elizabeth Chai Verhaselli, and some others, 
Uh, Hail County this morning, this evening, Ramel Ross, Jocelyn Barnes, and others, Minding the Gap, Bing Liu and Diane Kwan, of Fathers and Sons, Talal Derkai, uh, Ansar Ansgar, uh, Frerich and others, and then uh, RBG, Betty West, and Julie Cohen. Uh, film editing, Black Klansman, Barry Alexander Brown, Bohemian Rhapsody, John Ottoman, or Ottman, The Favorite, Yorgos Marvopasardis, uh, Green Book, Patrick J. Don Vito, and Vice, Hank Corwin. Foreign language film, Capernaum, or Capernaum from Lebanon and Nadine. I'm going to go with Capernaum because it's um, N-A-U-M. Capernaum. But it could be Capernaum. It could be Capernaum. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if this is a translation from Lebanese or not. So... C-A-P-E-R-N-A-U-M. From Lebanon, Nadine Labaki. Cold War from Poland, which is Pawel Palakowski. Never Look Away from Germany. Uh, Florian Henkel von, and they don't have the rest of the guy's name there, or woman's name there, so sorry about that. Roma from Mexico, Alfonso Cuaron. And Shoplifters from Japan, uh, Hirokazu Koreida. Uh, for makeup and hairstyling, we have Border, which is Goran Lundstrom and Pamela something or other, Mary Queen of Scots, Jenny, Jenny Shearcor and Mark Pilcher, among others, Vice, Greg Canham, Katie Bisco, and one more. And then music, original score, Black Panther, Ludwig Goranson, Black Klansman, Terrence Blanchard, If Beale Street Could Talk, Nicholas Bertel, Isle of Dogs, Alexandre Desplat, and Mary Poppins Returns, Mark Scheiman. Music original song. All the stars from Black Panther, which is music by Kendrick Lamar and others. I'll fight from RBG. Music and lyrics by Diane, and it doesn't say. Uh, the place where the lost things go. I'm sorry, the place where lost things go from Mary Poppins Returns. Music by Mark Scheiman. Lyrics by Not Listed. Shallow from A Star is Born. Music and lyrics by Lady Gaga. And When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings. Music and lyrics by David Not Listed. Uh, production design, we have Black Panther and, um, uh, let's see, Hannah Beachler, The Favorite, Fiona Crombie, First Man, Nathan Crowley. Really? Nathan Crowley? Oh, it's Crowley. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking, holy crap, they got the dude from Downton Abbey. Uh, anyway, Mary Poppins returns, John Muir and Roma, Eugenio Caballero. Uh, let's see here. Sound editing, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, A Quiet Place, and Roma. And then sound mixing, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, Roma, and A Star is Born. And then visual effects, Avengers Infinity War, Christopher Robin, First Man, Ready Player One, Solo, A Star Wars Story. Uh, adapted screenplay for writing, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Black Klansman, Can You Ever Forgive Me, If Beale Street Could Talk, and A Star is Born. Writing original screenplay, The Favorite, First Reformed, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. Whew! And now that we've gone through the list, and, and I mean, I skipped the ones that we normally skip, so that was, you know, short film animated, short film live action stuff. Uh, so I skipped a couple of categories. Obviously, you can go to oscar.go.com slash nominees, and... Check that out. Check out the whole thing in better detail for yourself. But now that we've gone through the, all the things that we're going to cover on the show, 
in terms of predictions and stuff like that and all the movies we see for those categories. What do you got to say for yourself, Tim? I know that you are a little upset. Is there Are there any particular areas of contention you would like to discuss? I wasn't super happy with this year's Oscar nominations. In fact, I felt there were a lot of snubs this year. Personally felt more snubs this year than there had been for quite some time. But I'm going to start off with what I liked. And it's not really something good for the film. (laughs) Quite frankly, it's something bad that I happen to approve of. And the one thing I enjoyed seeing in the nominations was that First Man was only nominated for sound editing and sound mixing. First Man did not receive nods in any of the main categories. That means it didn't receive nominations for Best Picture, Best Director for Damien Chazelle, for Best Actor for Ryan Gosling, for Best uh, Actress, but only nominations for Sound Editing and Sound Mixing. The reason why... I like this. Trust me, it's not because I'm a horrible person. But unfortunately, people tend to give Oscar nominations not necessarily to the people who deserve to win. And because Damien Chazelle, young filmmaker now, he got hot with Whiplash. His follow-up movie became even hotter, and that was La La Land. And because he had those two films, especially La La Land, that everybody loves... First Man was hyped up with Damien Chazelle's name. You know, it was the pairing of Damien Chazelle and Ryan Gosling together again. You know, and so I was worried that people were just going to give First Man all these accolades, all these nominations, because of Damien Chazelle and what he has produced before. First Man, it's a good film. It's not a great film. It's one of those movies where if you see it on TNT, TBS, whichever one of those stations are still around these days, if I saw it on one of those stations, I'd probably watch it. You know, it's like Rudy. Does Rudy deserve Academy Award nominations? No, it's just a good movie, and that's okay too. What I did not like, unfortunately, Black Panther can be placed alongside... First Man, for those of you who listen to the show on a regular basis, you may or may not have heard me talk about Black Panther. I enjoyed it. It's better than most of the other Marvel flicks. But because of its subject matter, and because it elevates the superhero genre of movies, does that warrant the film a Best Picture nomination? Guys, it received a nomination for Best Picture and best production design. There's not great blue screen effects. There's not great CGI. Uh, The movie becomes very overplowed by the time the credits begin to roll at the end. That does not make for a great movie. There are a couple other films that easily could have been nominated in Black Panther's place that I felt definitely deserved the nomination. Again, Black Panther's a good movie, but... I feel like it's just one of those movies that just because it's something a little bit out of the norm, people automatically assume it's something amazing because they're not used to seeing it. And because they're not used to seeing it, they leave all criticisms at the door. Now, is it bad to leave all criticisms at the door? Not at all. People love the Fast and the Furious movies. They go in for popcorn fun. 
That's great. Does Black Panther offer more than just popcorn fun? Of course it does. But it's not Oscar material. And most of the time when I talk to people about this, they usually say, well, I mean, can no superhero action movie be nominated for an Oscar? And my response is, yes, of course. I would love to see a superhero action movie be nominated for an Oscar, but just not this one. And then the second nomination that I did not like was for Vice. And actually it's uh, one, two, and three nominations for Vice. Best Editing, Original Screenplay, and Directing Nomination. Now, I thought the acting in Vice was phenomenal. However, the movie was sloppy and choppy as hell. Therefore, the main issue with this film that I took with this film was its editing. And what goes hand in hand with the editing but the one who directed that editing, therefore the director. And unfortunately, the editing and the directing got nominated for an Oscar. Original screenplay, that's fine with me. I thought there were some humorous lines, and I would like to at least read the screenplay without the choppiness of the timeline. So those were the two nominations that I absolutely did not like. The Black Panther Best Pick nomination, and then uh, the three, or actually the two Vice nominations for editing and directing. Now, what did I feel were absolute snubs? And I'm talking about films, I'm talking about performances, I'm talking about filmmakers who did not receive any recognition whatsoever. Well, first reformed, Ethan Hawke, should have been nominated for Best Actor. And Paul Schrader, who of course was nominated for Original Screenplay, he should have been nominated for Best Director. Guys, First Reformed is on Amazon Prime currently. If you can, go check it out. It's a wonderful film. Two docs, I felt, got snubbed. Three Identical Strangers and McQueen. McQueen is about the English fashion icon named Steve McQueen, who the fashion industry lost way too soon. He was a young guy, and he was super popular in the late 90s and very, very early 2000s. Two excellent films. RBG got nominated. RBG is a very good documentary, but it's a very obviously politically driven documentary. I mean, just these two are, were just so darn good. So darn good. And they deserved to be nominated. Uh, Minding the Gap was another movie that was nominated. I didn't care too much for that film, but at least it was a different kind of documentary. It took the lives of young skateboarders and how they are living within their poor community. And so and so the filmmaker took their stories and did these parallels with skateboarding and all this stuff. And at least it made for an, an, a very interesting documentary. Can't say anything for all the other nominations because I haven't seen the others yet, but please check out Three Identical Strangers and McQueen. Uh, another film that I felt was snubbed is a film called Colette, which starred Kira Knightley, and the costumes should have been nominated. Uh, and the costumes were by Andrea Flesh. Stan and Ollie should have been nominated for makeup and screenplay. Stan and Ollie was directed and written by uh, one of the co-writers of Philomena. His name escapes me. But I just saw this this past weekend, and... It's absolutely wonderful. Stan and Ollie is the Laurel and Hardy movie starring Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. John C. Riley, John C. Riley plays 
Oliver Hardy, and he has the fat makeup on, the fat face. It's just absolutely stellar. There's so many close-ups of John C. Riley as Oliver Hardy, and it just blew me away. It looks just like him. It's crazy. You get lost in his performance. Uh, another good makeup nomination would have been for Chappaquiddick, which was the Ted Kennedy movie from ages ago. I think that came out in March of 2018, March or April 2018. That easily could have garnered a nomination. And then A Star is Born. I would have loved to have seen Bradley Cooper nominated and even receive the Academy Award for Best Director. Was Bradley Cooper's performance in A Star is Born good? Yes, of course. But his direction absolutely trumped his performance. There were so many elements to the film that he had to bring together the music, uh, the direction, the, the look of the film, with the, you know, along with the cinematographer, you know, that he had to direct and compose that I just could not believe he was overlooked. And there you have it. Yeah, I, I think Black Panther is tricky. I think it, it is such an important movie on other levels, not even, not even to the political spectrum of it. I just think it's that it's become kind of this calling card for a, for a return to form in, I guess you could say African American cinema without it being black exploitation. And so I think it, but on the merits of that, combined with the fact that yes, it is a crowd pleaser film and it is a superhero film, um, that has kind of breached, not broached, but literally kind of breached the ceiling, if you will, the glass ceiling that people think of when they think of just any kind of, like a Marvel movie or what have you, getting into that prestige spot, I think leaves open the possibility that other movies can't, of that same ilk, and it doesn't have to be the political side, or it does, or even if it's a perceived political side, um, it doesn't just have to be the multicultural aspect, um, although these are great avenues to uh, to open discussion and things to explore i think it just keeps in mind the fact that movies like that can make it um i don't believe it will win uh, i don't believe it is even really a strong contender for best picture um much in the same vein as bohemian rhapsody i think it's just carried by the weight by just the sheer weight of the publicity and the push for everything that's, it's so hot right now. Um, those are the things that are kind of carrying the films in these two films into that spotlight. But at the end of the day, they made it into that spotlight. And I think it continues to show the value for these kinds of films and the vehicles that these films represent for getting there. Um, and so I think that's, I, I, at the end of the day, I think that's why they're there. I think it is a bit of um I, I do think it demonstrates also though that with only x amount of films based on the percentage of academy voters being able to meet a threshold that gets them in um especially since technically i guess there is no max but i think it's a maximum I, but basically i don't think it's coming it's supposed to be more than 10 movies um 
I think it does signify that other more deserving films might miss out. Um, you know, for me, I don't think Vice is best picture material. I think it's, uh, as I stated in the review, I think it stands for, I think it does stand for a representative vehicle in terms of the acting and the performances. But on the whole, I just don't think it's a, I don't think it's that great of a movie. And I, I mean, I know I only gave it a two and a half, so whatever. Um, but then, but then we also bleed into things like Roma. And for me, Roma as a, as a foreign film, I think if you're going to say that it has the chops, despite it being a foreign film, to go as a contender in main, air quote, mainstream Academy nominations or what have you. So, you know, best actress and best director, uh, best cinematography, best picture. Then I think you need to, um, let, let that be the laurels that it rests upon to compete. And open up another spot in the best foreign film category because I think it's is I personally I think it's a little bit double dipping. And I think that at that point, if you say the movie's good enough that it can compete, that it can go up against all the other heavy hitters, then let's bring in another foreign film so that we can widen that pool. Um I also agree that as much as I loved Bradley Cooper and I'm glad he got the nomination. If I had to choose between director and actor, like you, Tim, I would much rather have seen him get the director uh, nomination instead of the acting nomination. The animated film category is really weak this year if two of the movies have to, have to be Disney movies. I'm glad Isle of Dogs is there, don't get me wrong. I'm glad Spider-Verse is there. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Mirai if we're, you know, if everything works out in terms of being able to get that between now and when the Oscars air. But that was it. Incredibles and Ralph, Wreck-It Ralph 2. This is, damn, weren't there, weren't there two better animated films this year? I don't know. I don't know. Other than that, I mean, nothing else. I, I don't really see anything else that's kind of screaming at me. That's worth talking about. Yeehaw. Stay tuned for our continued enthusiasm for this year's Academy Awards. <laughs> More to come within the next three weeks. All right. Well, then that brings us to the official end of all things news. And now we get to go to the movies. Do we not, sir? Let's hop on that train down to movie town. Then here we go, folks. It's the movie. We <laughs> All right, and this week's movies are Can You Ever Forgive Me at Eternity's Gate and The Wife. 2017's The Wife. Well, where do you want to start, sir? Why don't we start with At Eternity's Gate? Tell me, why do you say you're a painter? Because I love painting. I have to paint. I've always been a painter. That I know. A born painter? Yes. How do you know? Because I can't do anything else, and believe me, I've tried. I think of myself as an exile. You're Vincent. Yes, sales brother. I'm Paul Gauguin. We have to start a revolution, do you understand? We have to create a new vision, a new way of painting. I spent all my life alone in a room. I'd like to find a new light. 
for paintings that we haven't yet seen. There's something inside me. I don't know what it is. What I see, nobody else sees. You're a stranger here. You drink too much. You're hysterical, out of control. I don't want to calm down. It's called the act of painting for a reason. Don't you see that this painting is unpleasant? The townspeople have signed a petition against you. They don't want you to come back. I can't stay here, Vincent. You're surrounded by stupid, wicked, ignorant people. So that's the reason why you cut off your hair. Your vision of the world is quite frightening, isn't it? Yes. Sometimes I feel so far away from everything. I think I'm losing my mind. Do you believe that God gave you the gift of painting to keep you in misery? I never thought about it that way. Maybe God made me a painter for people who aren't born yet. Tell me, brother, am I a good painter? You're not a good painter, Vincent. You're a great painter. I wanted so much to share what I see. Now I just think about my relationship to eternity. All right, we got a 2018 biographical drama film, and this basically is the final years of Vincent van Gogh's life. Uh, films directed by Julian Schne- uh, Schnabel and stars Willem Dafoe, Rupert Friend, uh, Mads Milkison, Matthew Almick, and Emmanuel Sanger, and Oscar Isaac, among others. And as, I mean, it, it really does focus on the last, what, three, four years of his life? Three-ish, four-ish years, I guess, of his life. Um, and kind of deals with Van Gogh's, his true mental state that kind of led him to do those things that he's most famous for having done. And it really does kind of lean into the way he was viewed and the things that make him tick in such a way that he was viewed as he was. Not just because of his art, but because of how he carried himself and how he handled himself in regards to those things driving his art. Um, and shenanigans ensue, as I always say. Now... For me, the movie, where I think the movie, the strength of the movie really lies, uh, and remember, Willem Dafoe was nominated uh, for the Oscar here for playing Vincent Van Gogh, but I think the true brilliance of this film rests on Rupert Friend's portrayal of Theo. Now, it's not that he acted the part better, but... Theo is the constant impetus that allows Vincent to keep going. He's the only one who, despite his frustrations, because something that I think people miss is that despite the crazy things like cutting off his ear and stuff like that, that Van Gogh did, and something that I thought was very well done in the film is that they don't... Most people think he, oh, he was crazy and he had the hots for some chick and mailed his ear to her. That's, that's actually not what happened. And the film touches on that because while, yes, in point of fact, the ear does kind of end up <laughs> with a woman briefly, it, he doesn't think of it in that context. And they kind of, gloss over it because he doesn't remember it and because he's because he doesn't remember it a particular way the film doesn't try to pretend that it's anything other than 
the way Vincent deals with this stuff. And so it's hard in some times and points to relate to him. You root for him, which is what you should do for any good protagonist of the film, even when they're tortured. But you don't always understand him. And so that's where Theo steps in. Because as much as Theo realizes how hard it is for Vincent to be there, he knows and believes in what Vincent's capable of. And he's kind of that impetus. And it's always that thing that Vincent's able to fall back on to a certain, to a, to a greater degree than not. I think that Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Mikkelsen also does a great job as the priest in this film, as kind of someone who steps in to help personify the audience. I think it's, I think he does a really good job of helping to personify what the audience's expectations are because he's there to try and help bring whatever is possible out of Vincent to the fore to help make sense of things so that you as an audience member can do that, but balances it against the, the people of the time who hated him. So there's a lot of really good story elements in here. Um, but I think Theo is kind of the, the hidden champion of the film. And Rupert Friend does a good job. Um, I also think that Oscar Isaac does a great job in this film too. He plays a, uh, painter, uh, a painter friend, Paul, uh, Galgeen. And, um, Oscar Isaac does a fantastic job. And of course, Vincent carries the day, Willem Dafoe carries the day. But I think just the way that the story elements are used to really kind of pull a more interesting and real biographical drop uh, backdrop for him, along with the almost fantastical way in which Vincent views the things that happen, especially traumatic things, make this movie a powerful watch. And... It's not a perfect film because I think they try to in they don't vilify Vincent to any real degree, but they try and lean into the idea of how much he was hated in his own lifetime as kind of the driving force for his insanity instead of the fact that it's it's a combination of the situation and his mental health that I don't think is able to be communicated in a film like this. And it's kind of a conglomeration of those things. And so it misses a few beats here and there and kind of feels like it struggles to accurately portray things, especially towards the end. But but all in all, very well done. I thoroughly enjoyed this story, and I, I am so happy for Willem Dafoe yet again. Uh, and I give this a 4.5. What do you got there, Tim? I felt this was a very good film. I gave it a four out of five. I thought the performances were excellent, not just Willem Dafoe's, everyone's performance. They all served a purpose. A lot of the performances shined, even Willem Dafoe's shined with nuance when he was performing with one other person. You know, the little duet scenes. I loved how these duet scenes pop up throughout the story with each of these duets another layer of van gogh's character comes to light little by little you begin to understand who he is as a human being and not as a legend or a character because there's been enough written about van gogh but when you think about him, you only think of the tall tales. And even with that 
animated film that came out last year about Vincent Van Gogh that we reviewed, and it was also nominated for Best Animated Film. Their point was that they didn't really know what was happening with Vincent Van Gogh, when I would at least like an interpretation of what maybe the film's director or the storytellers thought that happened with Vincent Van Gogh. I don't know if anybody really does know, but this film comes across as if they knew exactly what was going on with him, what his mental state was. And Willem Dafoe's performance was absolutely wonderful. He captures the nuance of the mental illness that he was suffering. He was also capturing the inner struggle that all great artists have. And it's just absolutely beautiful. However, the main issue I took with this film, and if the performances were not as great as they are, my biggest issue might have brought this score down from a 4 to either a 3.5 or a 3. And my issue with this film is that it was over-directed. I love Julian Schnabel, mainly because of his work on The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, which was nominated what, 10 years ago or so? Absolutely flawless film. So because of that film, I'll take whatever he has got to offer. He's an artist of a filmmaker, and he's also a painter, Julian Schnabel is. But this film felt over-directed, with frustrating single long takes with the camera moving around to capture various drastic close-ups and angles. And for a while, at least at the beginning of the film, you get the impression that he's doing all this so that the audience feels like they're a fly on the wall because there were a few moments when the camera zips over to the wall and kind of hangs out right there, kind of crooked, and then it zips down to maybe Willem Dafoe's feet. And then it zips up to a close-up, an extreme close-up of, of Dafoe's face. But it does that throughout the film, and it becomes more distracting than it does add an element to the film itself. But that goes without saying, or I should say that goes without saying, that it does work as in aesthetic some of the time. But a big chunk of the time, it's distracting. Go for the performances. Go for the story. Try not to let the over-direction bother you too much. I give it a 4 out of 5. Check it out. Very good, sir. And where do you want to turn from here? How about the wife? Next time I introduce you, try a little eye contact. And next time, don't refer to me as your son, the half-baked writer. You shouldn't need my approval to write. Everyone needs approval, Joe. Hello? Am I speaking to Mr. Gosselman? I'd like my wife to get on the extension. Hello, I'm on. It is my great honor to tell you, Mr. Gosselman, that you have been chosen to receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. Tell me this isn't some great big fat joke. It's all real, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Welcome to Stockholm. We are so delighted to have you here. I came across some of your stories in the college journal, beautifully written. Joe had a very heavy hand as a teacher. Did he encourage you to keep writing? A writer writes because he has something personal to say. 
You write with intelligence, but you're detached. The characters are supposed to be detached, especially the mother. My wife doesn't write, thank God. Otherwise, I'd suffer permanent writer's lock. <laughs> Don't ever think that you can get their approval. Who's? The men. The ones who decide who gets to be taken seriously. A writer has to write. A writer has to be read, honey. Don't walk away from me, diamond! I can't do it anymore. I can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. What are we doing? John, we're not bad people. I think you are sick and tired of Joe Castleman. I would like to convey to you the warm congratulations of the Swedish Academy. You have reinvented the very nature of storytelling. Tell me about yourself. Do you have an occupation? I do. And what is that? I am a kingmaker. We got a 2017 drama film directed by Bjorn Runge and written by Jane Anderson. This is based on the novel of the same name by Meg Wolitzer. Uh, film stars Glenn Close, Jonathan Price, and Christian Slater and follows the wife of, uh, of a Nobel Prize winner who is questioning all of her life choices uh, as they travel to Stockholm for the ceremony. All right. So, yeah. This is a very interesting movie. And while it stars Glenn Close and Jonathan Price, we also have some very good performances because this she's kind of going back over her life. And so we have good performances that I think kind of make the underpinnings of the great performances we're seeing from Jonathan Price and Glenn Close. And those come from Annie Stark and Harry Lloyd. And so... um this is a young woman who is working on writing, and of course, this is back in the in the late fifties. Uh, women's women's rights are still kind of tenuous at best, and women in the workplace and women doing the things that men can do and doing them well or better um, is still thought of as a distant dream, so to speak. For the vast majority of people. Enter Joan, who meets Joseph, and uh, he's a professor, she's a student, and uh, they hit it off. Uh, one thing leads to another, and they kind of end up, they basically they end up together, and he's not the writer he thought he was, and so she decides to support him and step up to the plate and help help ensure that he can become a writer. And of course, as I like to say, shenanigans ensue, it carries forward. Here's where we are, and of course, things have happened in the interim. What I think this movie really does, aside from showcase the ability of this okay, let me let me start again. Let me start again. What I think this movie really exemplifies is there's an old saying out there. It says, behind every great man is an even greater woman, right? And this film explores the darker side of that reality. Because when, generally when you think of that, you think of a, you think of a man who has been successful, and it's not just because he's this this amazing person on his own. It's generally because the chief woman in his life, and it could be, um, and 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 especially in today's day and age, it could just be that 
spouse. It could be that significant other. It could be that one person in your life who's always been there for you. It might be your significant other. It might have, it might be your lover. It just might be a true friend. It might be a family member, but 99.9% of the time, the people who do great things have someone behind them who was there to support them and pick up the pieces when things didn't go well and are generally left in the dust especially in the dustbin of history. Um, and that is sometimes both the more significant and the more upsetting role, because shouldn't they be recognized for making it possible for this person to change history? And we don't look at it, we don't always look at it in that regard. And this film truly explores those concepts. And I think it explores them in a way that is something that we haven't seen done in a while and we haven't seen done well that I can remember. The only flaw to this film for me, and sadly I hate to say it because I think I I love this guy as a character actor, and I just, you know, I think he's probably a pretty interesting dude overall, is Christian Slater. I think he is the weak point in the film, not because he acts poorly, and not because it is a bad character per se. I just feel that Christian Slater's character is really the plot device of the film. It it's He's just kind of there to make sure that the film moves forward. It's not as organic as it could be otherwise. I still think that in and of itself, he does a good job with the character. I just think that the character is just kind of, eh. I think it could have been written in a different way and it would have made the movie that much stronger. As it is, again for me, 4.5, thoroughly enjoyed this movie, Take it away, Tim. I thought Glenn Close did an absolutely wonderful job. In fact, I feel in the nomination for Best Actress, she's up right against Coleman. Coleman is, of course, nominated for her role in The Favorite. But it's going to be a little battle royale between the two of them. But Glenn Close gives an absolutely wonderful and strong performance I like how the film plays out, the story and characters play out like a play, because you're watching everything unfold with not that many scenes. A lot of it takes place in one area, whether they're in the room, whether they're in maybe another room, little snippets in a conference room, little snippet of, a, of dialogue in a scene in an auditorium, but a lot of it is two people discussing things that are very important to the story and these characters. So the screenplay for this film is important, and I thought incredibly well-written because the film is all character-driven, and you can see most of it play out in Glenn Close's nuances. You know, the look she has in her eye, how she reacts to certain things, how she doesn't react to certain things. It's a very graceful performance, I felt. However, the main issue I had with the film, yes, Glenn Close's character is strong, or she becomes strong by the end of the film, but then you have Jonathan Price's character, who is way too whiny, and 
doesn't come across as grounded in reality, at least not grounded in reality enough or even intimidating enough for Glenn Close's character to put up with him for all these years. Kept in the shadow, I couldn't really understand why her character would have let his character do that to her for such a long period of time. Yet, I am giving the wife a 4.5 out of 5. I felt it was an excellent flick, minus these character and performance issues. Okay, that leaves us with, can you ever forgive me? Just these. I don't want the others. Come on, man. I slept these all the way here. There's people waiting. You know, you don't have to be so disrespectful. You've actually carried my books here. And you are? Lee Israel. Oh, we have copies of your latest work right over there. Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Craig, no problem. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. Recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Yeah, I can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it priceless. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly be involved in, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <gasps> this is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we gonna do? Gamble, shop, drink. <laughs> Ms. Israel, let me have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh -oh. What seems to be the problem? People are on alert. Your name's been put on a list. On a list? They're literary treasures. One of a kind. It's my writing. You're impersonating other people. Nobody's buying Lee Israel letters. There have been some forgeries going around. Do you think it's real? Looks that way. Good. You're stealing from me? Come on. Get out of my house! That's just supposed to be something more than this. We're probably looking at some time behind bars. What? I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. All right, 2018 American biographical film directed by Marielle Heller and with a screenplay by Nicole Holof... Holof Center and Jeff Witte, based on Lee Israel's 2008 memoir of the same name. Now, this actually stars Melissa McCarthy as Israel and then is following her while she tries to basically um, revitalize her own career through nefarious means of doctoring historical um, letters. And by doctoring, I mean inventing. The movie stars her, uh, stars Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting movie. I will say that. I think it is definitely one of those perfectly blended dark comedies, I think, because it, when you think of dark comedies, as I was telling Tim in the pre-show, most people think of movies kind of like Death to Smoochie or something like that, right? Um, well, this movie definitely goes into dark comedy territory without having to reach for 
things that are violent or disturbing or anything like that. At the same time, it also pretty much leaves dramedy territory alone. There are serious things in the film, but the serious things that they talk, that they touch on generally are where they pull their comedy from. And so that's kind of what makes it funny. Um, and, and more enjoyable than not. I think the biggest problem though is that I don't think they are as intellectually honest with the characters as they could have been, given that this is based on a true story. Um, Lee Israel, not for nothing, was a lesbian. And they don't really touch on that aspect of her life. They, 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 they hint at it because they have a character who kind of hits on her and she's kind of like, Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. Um, but, but they don't really explore that aspect of it, especially when they put it against Richard E. Grant's Jack Hawk, who's basically, uh, you know, hitting on anything that moves. And so you, you kind of see this and it's, and it's kind of meant to add to the interplay and add kind of dimensions to the characters that help you understand their motivations. And don't get me wrong, I think that this is one of those movies where you gotta understand, in this particular context, Lee is not a good person, and yet you want to root for her. And so it's, it's cleverly written, and there's no denying that. You, you have to be careful when you're writing a bad guy, because even though you're, or bad, you know, and when I say bad character, I'm talking about like sinister, evil character, if you will. When you're writing a bad character, you you definitely have to walk a fine line of being able to make them relatable enough that you want to see them succeed, but still understand that what they're doing is wrong. And I don't know. I, I liked all those aspects. I just don't feel like the characters themselves were as balanced overall as they could be. That being said, I am happy to see these nominations for both of them because I don't fault the acting. I don't necessarily even fault the direction so much. I think this one kind of falls into the writing, into the writer's camp. But despite those failings within the characters themselves, I think that the story that's told is still really strong. So I give this one a four out of five, and I would absolutely recommend that you check it out. And that is what I have to say. So bring us home, Tim. I've been excited to see Can You Ever Forgive Me since I saw the first trailer. And that is because of both Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. I've loved Richard E. Grant since I first saw him in the wonderful late 80s British film With Nail and I. And Melissa McCarthy, as much flack as I give her in the films that she is in, and I'm talking about her outlandishly dumb comedy films that she's usually in, I know that there is talent there. I know that she is a great performer. I know she's a good person. Based on the trailer, I knew she was in a fantastic element. You know, she she had something great going on for her, and I just could not wait to see it. Can You Ever Forgive Me is a four out of five star flick for me. It's a very, very good movie, but not as good as the story that it's telling. What I mean by that, the story of these people is fascinating. You know, you got this woman, Lee Israel, pushed to her limits, 
And the most obvious thing for her to do is forgery. <laughs> it's just an absolutely fascinating story. But the film starts off incredibly strong. The first half of the film I felt was perfect. It's funny, there's a, there's a lot of character. Everything is well balanced. But after that halfway mark, where, say, in the trailer, where you think it's the end of the movie, where you think you're seeing stuff that happens at the end of the movie, actually happens maybe a little past the halfway mark in the, in the film itself. Once that stuff happens, the movie kind of loses its footing. You know, it, it's not as held together as it was during its first half. Are the performances still great? Of course they are. Is the movie worth seeing? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's just kind of a shame that it didn't hold itself together from beginning to end. But I still give it a 4 out of 5. Go and check it out. Okay, well next week's movies are going to be Free Solo, Cold War, and Shoplifters. And without further ado, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, stewardess. I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp the one to help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in it. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NickTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Christian Slater, I get to say this. Good judgment comes from experience. Sometimes experience comes from bad judgment. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.